Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. We're podcasting from Northeast Ohio. This is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series, Race and Democracy in Northeast Ohio, a collaboration with the School of Peace and Conflict Studies and the Center for Pan-African Culture. The project includes a 10-podcast episode series focused specifically on the intersections of race and democracy in Northeast Ohio. We're also planning community workshops on the topic of race and democracy and developing online curricular materials, such as activities, toolkits, and concept pages. This series is made possible with funding from Mark Lewine and the John Gray Painter Program. Check out our website to learn more about our upcoming events and stay up to date on new content. You can find us at www.growingdemocracyoh.org. And this is my first time uh, hosting a, an episode with you, Nuj. And this was a great episode. You brought me a fellow theater nerd. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad to be of help. Uh, but, you know, again, Katie is uh, somebody I know. And again, uh, community theater is one of the many hats she wears, and she is a very, very inspiring and well-admired uh, member of the community. And, you know, she has connections with almost everyone. She's very, as you saw, she's very uh, well-connected with the immigrant and refugee communities, too. Right? She engages them. I think when I think of uh, inclusion and diversity, a lot of the thing, a lot of the works that uh, Katie does is right in there. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, I think on the kind of national stage, uh, Cleveland gets a lot of attention in the Northeast Ohio area. And Akron gets relatively little outside of, you know, any association with LeBron James. But there's so much more going going on in Akron than I think most people know. And Katie was really able to speak to a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it's very positive that there is a lot of investment uh, within uh, Akron and even neighborhoods like uh, North Hill. I think it speaks a little bit about how uh, there is more and more capital and investment that is being brought in just by the influx of uh, refugee and immigrant communities, right? And I always felt these are the kind of stories that would make a mark, uh, you know, uh, but considering these are sort of local sort of micro stories, they don't get as much attention, right? Uh, You know, there's always going to be political division, uh, polarization around the topics of immigration. I get that. However, if you look at uh, places like North Hill and Akron, there are a lot of positive sort of stories. There are a lot of positive relations being created, a lot of positive networks being created. And Katie, I think, represents that very, very well. She absolutely does. So joining us today is Katie Beck. And Katie is a very well-known and admired young community leader in Akron. She's worked in community development, community organizing, and is a pioneer in the local community theater scene. She's the co-artistic director of Gumdip Theater and former executive director of North Akron Community Development Corporation. Her awards include Akron Chambers 30 for the Future Award in 2019, Arts Alive Outstanding Artist and Theater Award in 2018, and Knight Foundation Arts Challenge Awards. So thanks so much for joining us today. All right, so we are so glad to have you with us today, Katie. And as we kind of start off all of our podcast episodes, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your story and how would you kind of describe your journey so far? 
Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I was born and raised in Akron, Ohio. Um, I am the granddaughter of a rubber worker and um, the daughter of a marketing entrepreneur. Um, so I have sort of three generations of this entrepreneurial spirit within my family um, that has always driven me. Uh, I went to St. Vincent St. Mary High School, um, which is known as LeBron James High School, but I like to uh, <laughs> make that connection that there is more than one champion that went there. Um, and then I went to Allegheny College in Northwestern Pennsylvania, um, where I got my degree in theater and community and justice studies, which is an intersection of performing arts and community organizing. Originally, when I left Akron, I thought that I would never come back, which I think is a common um, hometown teenager kind of feeling. But once I discovered this process of community-based theater, where it's co-creating with specific communities, um, I decided that I wanted to come back home and try that process here. So I moved back to Akron in 2014 and um, moved back to the the neighborhood of North Hill, which is one of the most racially diverse and socioeconomically mixed neighborhoods in the country and just fell in love with the community and, and started um, doing some of my own organizing and theater producing uh, shortly after I moved back. Well, thank you, Katie. Uh, I am glad that you brought up your own life as a local in um, Akron, spe specifically uh, in North Hill, because I wanted to ask you, right, since you're a local in the Akron area and you grew up there, you know, you represent generations of Akronites there, right? Um, as you know, Akron has gone through a lot of changes, right? Economic changes, uh, so, you know, demographic changes in the last few decades and so on. So I was just wondering if you could speak a little about the diversity and the changes you see in Akron from, you know, as, as somebody who grew up in Akron, as an adult, uh, you see these changes today, right? Like, I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, um, it is it's a pretty interesting perspective to be a boomerang, as they call it. Um, growing up in Akron, I, I grew up in uh, part of my adolescence in Firestone Park and the other part in South Akron. Um, so why I make that distinction specifically is um, I sort of lived in uh, two different houses, um, which was separated by a red line on Archwood Avenue. So I saw this direct um, change in, in my uh, living situation from when I was younger to being in high school in South Akron. So I think that's the first sort of noteworthy thing for me was that I, I lived you know, in the same sort of couple mile radius growing up, but I saw this huge um, infrastructure difference, economic disparity difference, um, just in how uh, that that area of Akron works. And of course, like many other urban areas, um, redlining was a common practice. Um, so then- Katie I, Katie, I wonder, could you just for our listeners real quickly explain what redlining is? Because I think a lot of people don't Maybe sure. Understand yeah. that concept, right? Yeah, I I will do my best, and then um, <laughs> y'all can add in if I if I don't say everything correctly. So redlining was the process of defining boundaries in cities when it came to like urban planning, where uh, it would distinguish if certain populations of people could live in an area, um, and that was it was obviously a very racist practice. Um, and it still affects uh, housing and the neighborhood makeup of cities today. So Akron um, did have very distinct redlining and you can still see 
the differences even now, um, decades later. Yeah, so I know, so specifically in South Akron with Firestone Park, um, it was a company town that was literally designed and built by Harvey Firestone himself because his factory was um, in the area. And so he built the housing and the schools and the churches to uh, help nurture and cultivate his workers lives Um, because at the time right there was a lot of labor uh, development happening in terms of the eight-hour workday and and strikes and all of that so he was really trying to invest in the um, quality of life for his workers and so uh, as many of us are aware um, starting in the 1980s there was this flight of the rubber industry from Akron like so many other Rust Belt cities Um, so when those companies left, people were left without jobs. Um, they were left without uh, income in order to pay for these homes, right, in these neighborhoods. And they were also, they sort of lost um, a sense of pride because so much of their identity and their livelihood was based on this identity with the rubber industry. So I say all of that as context to say that I grew up in the 90s in Firestone Parks, it was right, you know, at the cusp of when that was happening. And I just remember there being this sort of deflated air around um, living in that area and living in Akron. And I think I was too young to fully understand like the cultural context at the time. But looking back, um, I remember just sensing this like huge loss in the community without fully understanding it. So growing up, it, it was it was interesting because it just felt like the city didn't have any energy or any like drive. And even downtown was like, not what it, what, what it is now. Like it was, it was kind of empty and like dead. So um, growing up here, I, I just, I just didn't see potential in it. And I just was like, I need to get out of here and I'm going to move to New York or Chicago and become an actor. Um, but <laughs> that didn't happen. Thank goodness. Um so then, yeah, when I went to, uh, you know, I went, I went to a college in a very small town. It was 13,000, which is smaller than the North Hill neighborhood in Akron. Um, and seeing that difference with like this more rural culture um, was really interesting as well. Way more conservative in that area. It was a, a huge culture shock for me. And so then coming back to Akron, there was just this way more momentum happening um, with foundations investing more in public space and the arts and downtown having a lot of movement um, in terms of new businesses and rebuilding the infrastructure. So I feel, I feel very fortunate of the time that I came back during, because I think it was really, um, I think it was around the same 2014 or 2015 where we got a new mayor, right? We had the same mayor for like 30 something years. Um, So there's just a lot of fresh energy and momentum happening in Akron that I'm very grateful to uh, have sort of joined the wave of what's been happening in our city. Definitely. I mean, and you alluded to a little earlier that, you know, like, like other Rust Belt quote unquote cities that Akron, right, went through a period of decline. Cleveland similarly faced, you know, that, that period of decline, Pittsburgh too, but they all kind of took different trajectories to kind of rebuilding or rebranding or or rediscovering their identity. In your experience, how did this Akron or or a neighborhood just like North Hill kind of make sense of these changes and come to this 
point where they've kind of rediscovered uh, their identity as, as a city? That's a very interesting question. I think um, the neighborhoods differ in that progress. Uh, so for example, with, with Firestone Park where I grew up, there's still this old guard that's there that's very resistant to change because the neighborhood has been just like this older population for so long. Whereas North Hill, there's been an influx of um, refugees and immigrants being resettled in the neighborhood. Um, there's always been that history, right, of European immigrants resettling here and um, even a shift in the population with uh, urban renewal and, and the destruction of, of a predominantly Black neighborhood next to downtown, right? There's all these external factors that directly affected North Hill. And in a lot of ways, the neighborhood has, has always been in a in some sort of transformation, whether that's good or bad. So I think when there was like, uh, I think the, the most, the biggest influx of refugees coming in sort of started in 2007 with um, Nepali speaking Bhutanese refugees. And so um, that was sort of the reinvigoration of, of new populations coming into the neighborhood. And um yeah, specifically with, with new folks coming into a neighborhood, they have an entrepreneurial spirit. So they're opening businesses. They're wanting to buy homes. They have young families that are going to the schools. So I think um, just seeing, you know, this neighborhood that was once identified as Italian and Polish and, and Irish um, of immigrants who helped to build the infrastructure of the city, um, like the canal and the roads, literally, um, and them also working for the rubber factories um, and seeing this transformation of these newer populations now coming in from Southeast Asia and Central Africa and um, the Middle East has been really interesting because they're just they're bringing in their their own changes. And and then and what's a, a, what's kind of a cool fact is that like the North Hill was the first Akron neighborhood to have a population increase in the last few decades so even that in and of itself is important because the city has been trying to increase the population now for a while. So like just with, with the population increase with these changes in cultural identity and economic opportunity, um, I think that that reinventing of community identity has happened organically and has happened whether uh, longstanding residents wanted it to or not. Whereas these other neighborhoods where there's not as many diverse populations, they're not really forced to um, change, literally. <laughs> and, uh, so I, if I'm hearing you correctly, I mean, I'm just thinking of, so like Shaker Heights, where there's some kind of intentionality behind maintaining some diversity, that there is a sense of pride right up there that, that they, residents of Shaker Heights like to say, we're very diverse. But it sounds to me like in, in, Akron, and at least in some neighborhoods, that it was this org organic development of um, diversity that came about. What do you think was kind of the foundation for that? What what was it about Akron or those specific neighborhoods that had that kind of organically evolve? Um, well, I guess if we're talking about like, you know, over a hundred years ago, the rubber industry was like the, the uh, biggest attraction for immigrants coming to the city. Um, and then on top of that, like building the canal and the roads, what uh, they hired like mostly Irish for that kind of thing. And then um, the other kind of asset that we have in the North Hill neighborhood is the International Institute of Akron. 
Um, they've been around for over a hundred years and they, their home has always been North Hill. So I think their presence and their advocacy and great work has continued to support this resettling of former refugees and immigrants in the area. So they've really, because of their intentionality in, in wanting to support um, these populations, they have really uh, invested in the neighborhood by making these really meaningful connections and um, providing respite for uh, folks coming in. Yeah, I wouldn't mention, especially with the point about International Institute, I I think Katie's very correct, right? Uh, At least in the beginning, in the 2008 to 2010 period, when we were bringing in new refugees, you can see all the settlements sort of around International Institute because, you know, uh, refugees needed uh, all the resources they could get, and they were housed very close to the National Institute because, you know, they didn't have any means of public transportation. They didn't have any cars, at, at least not at that point, right? So you can still see a lot of sort of encampment. I, I shouldn't say encampment, but I should, a lot of the initial housing was still around the National Institute, right? Which is just very interesting. Oh, I was just going to say, and there was an excess in, of housing stock around that time as well because of the population loss from the rubber industry. So I think that's important to know that there was potential here for new neighbors coming in so it was the kind of the, the in one way you could say it is there's the destruction of right that people are leaving there's the out migration which really did set up a space for people to move in with the idea that right there was a, a pretty significant system of support so yeah no that's very interesting thank you all right um so katie i don't i don't know if you remember this but in 2018 I think it was October, we had this community dialogue uh, in Patterson Park, I believe, right? And you were there, and there's this thing you said, which has stayed with me after all these years, right? Because I think we were talking about, you know, what diversity looks like in North Hill, in Akron, uh, different populations coexisting together. And you said, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, right? Yeah, we have all this diversity that we talk about in Akron, but they all happen to be containing silos, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, so, and I think you were sort of referring to uh, some kind of tension, maybe some kind of detachment within communities, right? Uh, so I was wondering, has that changed or is, is it still continuing today? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think siloing is natural for people, especially when there are cultural and linguistic factors to consider in um in the differences of people so like specifically if you only speak one or two certain languages and they're not a language that other people speak from other communities then it already makes it harder to build a connection Um, on top of you know specifically for immigrants coming to the u.s and still learning how things work and how to navigate the system um there is comfort in being with your own community and more discomfort in trying to build connections outside of that. Right. So I think humans naturally um, are attracted by their own, their own communities or, or communities that they can find commonalities with. Um, So I think it's like never an intentional thing with people, but it just, it's, it's been happening naturally. And then even, you know, within American born communities there, right. There is a, a divide with, white and black Americans in terms of culture and history and, and all of these factors that have affected our 
political, economic, and social standing in society. So I think um, all of these different factors coming in, like externally, internally with people, it, it, it really divides even psychologically people to, to not interact as much. So yes, it's still happening, but I would like to think <laughs> that with some of the work I've done, with some of the work that we've done in news, right, with North Hill CDC, there has been more of an effort to build spaces that are welcoming um, to everyone and cultivate an opportunity to build relationships with different people. Because in a lot of ways, you know, when I first started kind of getting to know this community, I, I had to meet people in order to know what things were happening with those communities, right? Like there weren't on any platform or media site that I was aware of. So like I had to like literally meet people to find the route to meet them. But I think there is a lot more effort now with community development corporations um, and neighborhoods and then also with artists, because I will always advocate for artists as well in trying to curate happenings that are supportive of these cross-cultural relationships. And for me specifically, I, I find that it's uh, easiest or most fun to do that through the arts and story sharing. Um, Cause I think we can only really get to know people who are different from us by hearing their personal experiences and finding the commonalities that way. So I'm curious, uh, we talked a lot about grassroots uh, democracy on the show, and I'm curious about what you think is kind of a useful or necessary or needed tool that could kind of promote some uh, democracy for the residents of North Hill or, or Akron. What is it? Right. Is, so is, is it that, you know, community organizations can, can be the most flexible to respond to some of these needs of these residents? Or is there also kind of some more structural systemic change that could happen on the part of government? Or is it something kind of in between that would work best to support residents of North Hill? Yeah, I think I see sort of two ways um, of, of kind of how that can happen. One one thing that I've noticed since the pandemic started, um, and it, it really started happening even before the pandemic, but really in the last few years, is this effort to create collectives or networks that are organized to have you know a, a constant feedback loop with organizations who are either connected in like services or have similarities in the populations they're serving. Um, and I've really enjoyed seeing that because I've seen it with, you know, entrepreneurial efforts from the city of Akron. Uh, we have a greater Akron immigrant and refugee service provider network now that has been taking shape for the last few years. Um, I've, I've seen several other kind of versions of that. And I think that's really important because, because nonprofits have to function within capitalism. There is always this, um, drive as an individual organization to raise enough money and do enough work. And so that can easily disconnect them from what other people are doing in the city. So now I'm really happy to see more of these um, systems or, or larger collectives that are creating more of a, a cohesive system and uh, a cohesive system and network to better inform and support. So that way we aren't duplicating services 
And then we're also working together strategically, you know, for the purpose of, of justice and advocacy in our communities. So I think from a high level, I'm, I'm really enjoying seeing that. And also within all of that, like community development corporations are still new for Akron, right? They've been, they've been very successful in Cleveland the last 30, 40 years, but Akron's still like in the first 10 years of our development with them. But CDCs specifically are centered in that intersection of the social, the cultural, the political, the economic, the grassroots fabrics of a community. And so having organizations like that, that are um, making informed decisions with and for neighbors and residents is really important to um, building a healthy democracy within the neighborhood. So then on the other side of that, because I have to, <laughs> right, I, um, I have many hats that I wear and that I enjoy uh, speaking in and thinking about. So the other side of that, I think from a personal level and building democracy with residents, my interest is in using theater as a vehicle for people to practice empathy and to even build their own sense of self-confidence when it comes to being in the world as themselves, right? So I really think that theater and story circles are an opportunity to practice factual and imaginary versions of ourself. Mm. And that is so important, I think, in um, understanding and identifying who we are as people, because we have to have the space of processing, you know, traumatic or negative events that have happened to us and celebrating what has been good and what we love about our communities and doing that in a space where, you know, you're working on an end product, you're working on this, this thing that will culminate in a catharsis, which is one of the original intents of theater, right, is to have a catharsis and to purge ourselves of these emotions that we've been holding inside of us. So I think having that process, whether people um, you know, are part of a story circle and are sharing things about their lives, or we have artists who are creating a script and practicing it, or audience members who come to the final performance. There is um, this very beautiful space of acknowledging and reflecting on um, the woes of society and, and envisioning the future that we want to see in a space that's not really combative or aggressive. It's just very, like, what I love about art is you can respond to the art and have these hard conversations without there being accusatory kind of interactions or, um, or even it's, it's helpful because it can also invite people in who wouldn't normally be a part of that discussion. Cause as y'all have probably experienced, like you can, you can hold a talk about this or that, you know, injustice, but the people that show up are not necessarily the people who, who need to have that conversation. So I think art, um, and it's specifically the, you know, the active form of theater, there is that space for that dialogue to happen safely and productively. Yeah, I, I love that uh, perspective on reimagination uh, in a safe space. I, I think we all need a whole lot more of that in, in a lot of different spaces, right? So, all right, speaking of uh, uh, art and theater, I, I see you as somebody whose passion lies in community theater, uh, and uh, social justice. I, I just wanted to give you this space so you can talk about some of the incredible projects that you have organized uh, in Akron, right? Uh, especially in relation to community theater, uh, representation of artists, uh, as well as you know social justice. 
Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, we, uh, with Gum Zip Theater is, uh, our company that is co-owned by myself and my partner, Nima Ball, who is a Bhutanese Nepali theater artist, um, who is really focused on movement-based work. Um, so we, we have been, you know, we've spent six or seven years now creating community-based theater, which is a process that uses story circles and personal interviews and historical research to create a play with the community um, for the community and about the community. So the, the initial few years of Gumdip's work was really focused just on coming into the community and learning about them and building relationships and then creating a play. But more recently with the pandemic and the changes we've had to make logistically, because it's still hard to gather um, larger groups of people in an intimate space doing theater work, right? Which is right in each other's faces. <laughs> it's been harder. So in our adaption, we're still at the heart, we're still focused on creating plays that highlight and center marginalized voices, but our process has really um, integrated more artistic development with, within that community organizing as well. So uh, this last year, we we're working on a first rendering of a project called Brokers Without Borders, which is a, a multi-ethnic immigrant ensemble that has explored the role of the culture broker or someone who serves as a bridge between their community and their families and navigating the U.S. system. So we had three um, young artists. And when I say young, they're on their 20s. They're not necessarily like in their adolescence. Um, who uh, one is Vietnamese Nepali, one is Karen, which is an ethnic minority of Myanmar, and one is Congolese. And they each are very strong personalities and have been advocates and leaders in their community for many years now. Um, and so we worked through a devised process to create this first draft of what will be a full production. So we, from July to November, we were just in the process with them of we would have story circles. We would do free writes about, you know, their experiences of language differences and, and difficult situations they've had to navigate for their families. And then we would also do some theater training and learning how our bodies and voices and imaginations can activate and create um, these pieces. And so we really grew a strong bond um, through that process to create this production that we premiered in November. Um, and so for us as a company, like no work is ever complete. And so we, um, earlier in the year, we had applied and then received a Night Arts Challenge grant of $60,000 to continue to, the development of this work. Um, so I'm really excited about that because that's a huge investment for us to really take the time that we need to work with the artists um, not only on developing the, you know, narrative structure and what the performance looks like, but also giving them time to invest in themselves for um, developing their own skills. So that's, that's a cool project because we're going to be doing that through next year. Um, and already the response that we've had has been interesting because um, some people were really like, uh, somewhat, an audience member told me that they were pushed out of complacency when they saw the performance because mm -hmm. they're thinking around uh, refugees and and speaking with people who who are former refugees and what they go through. Like they just had a lot of audience members described having this like experience of 
being kind of gently slapped in the face. <laughs> um, not, not in any bad way, just like, a, oh, I never realized I was doing this kind of thing. So we really liked that response. And now we want to build more on how can we have this conversation in a more nuanced and, and detailed way? Because I think that's an important one, especially for how they all identify. Um, and then the other project that we've been working on for going on our third year now uh, is called Three Countries, One Mother. And it is a solo performance um, based on the Bhutanese Nepali history and culture and specifically highlighting the Tamang tribe. Um, so we also received a Night Arts Challenge grant in at the end of 2019 to do this project. So the pandemic really threw off all of our original plans of the piece. Like we really wanted it yeah. to be this huge, like community play that everyone was involved <laughs> in and had all these instruments and dancing. But, you know, with the pandemic, we just, we had to majorly pivot. So now it's a solar performance with Nemo ball. And um, we, every year from 2020 to 2021 to now, we've, you know, just done something and then torn it apart and then redid it again. So it's been a really interesting process because it's also very personal because it's about, you know, it's inspired from Nima's family story. It's inspired by stories we've gotten from the community about um, that history of, of having to leave Bhutan and then having to leave Nepal to come to the U S. Um, and so we've been exploring the the unique spirituality of the Tamang tribe, which is kind of a combination of indigenous shamanism and, and Buddhism. Um, and just seeing how like those spiritual influences affect their outlook on life in the greater framework of this, you know, refugee history. Um, so it's going to be an immersive experience. We're going to have smaller audiences and it's going to feel like you're in um, someone's home. So I'm really excited because it's, it's a, a different form than we've taken with our work before. Now, I'm really curious because as uh, you know, I've, we've done for the Growing Democracy Project, many kind of community-based uh, projects or, or workshops or events. But as somebody who's also got a theater background, I know how hard it is to get people involved when they kind of aren't necessarily uh, from, from a theater background <laughs> themselves. So how is your approach to a community in such a way that you can pull them into, you know, engaging with these events. Cause that seems like it would be a, quite a challenge. Yeah, that is, that's a very theater question. Because <laughs> <laughs> right, we have these like rituals, right? Like right. if you show up on time, you're late, right? Like all these yeah. things that are like very strict. So I, I mean, I've just, I'm super adaptable and flexible. That that's just the bottom line with community. Like everyone's coming from different places. They're they're juggling jobs and families and and all of these expectations. So um, I think the the biggest thing with community based theater is having that flexibility. Like sometimes rehearsal starts an hour late, and sometimes people cancel last minute, and it sometimes drives me crazy. <laughs> but I also have to be adaptable to understand that like not everyone has the capacity or even the experience in, in following kind of the, the rituals or the, or the guidelines of theater. We're always giving rides to people. That's always the thing I say too, is that it's, it's not a community-based theater play if you're not giving someone a ride. <laughs> like there's always transportation. Um, and yeah. And, and it's also like, I've had to embrace this mindset of 
the final performance isn't ever going to be perfect, but as long as the artists or the people involved feel good about it and are proud of what we're doing, then that's what matters. Like I think too, with artists can be really like perfectionists or, or really, um, you know, over, uh, over detailed about or exaggerating things about what has to be what it is. And for us, it's like, you know, as long as we're putting in the effort that we have with the people and what they're willing to give them, then we're happy with that. Cause the process is more important than the product in the end. Of course, audience is a major factor in it all, but like the process with the artist is what's important to us. All right. I have uh, one more question. So obviously I know uh, Katie personally, I've worked with her and Katie is very well admired uh, in the, or in the community. Uh, right. Uh, you, I see you as an inspirational uh, figure, right? Uh, because you wear so many hats, right? It's not just about community theater. It's also about community development, community organizing. Uh, I remember uh, a few years ago when uh, Exchange House used to be this hub of energy, right? Almost like this activism energy that Katie used to organize, right? So if we have uh, young listeners listening and trying to be the future Katie Beck, right? even though they might not do exactly everything you do, right? What would you uh, advise them or what, what would you recommend? What would, how would you guide them in moving forward in being as inclusive, inspirational and as representative as you have been? Thank you. That's very flattering. Everything you just said. Um, I think, I think for me, um, I really went through this time in college of like self doubt and questioning and, you know, all these existential thoughts, which I think is like a common college experience, right? That's what it's for. Um, of just realizing like how crazy and kind of horrible the world is sometimes, right? Because there's just a lot of realities that we can't like change personally. And so I was only comforted by the fact that I could affect or influence what's around me. Right. There's this larger global perspective that very few can really influence. And then there's even like a statewide or regional like circle that is still kind of far. But I, I just I was really grounded in the idea of like, OK, I can't do anything about these huge climate change issues or political scandals, but I can invest in my corner of the world and in my neighborhood. And I think that mindset really helped me come to to terms with the reality of the world and um, the potential of what we have and, and understanding that building personal relationships is so much of what life is supposed to be about um, in person, personal relationships, right? Like doing weird things together, having fun, not just these online presences. Like, I think that's so important for, you know, a healthy community. So I guess my first sort of point of advice would be to, find that corner of the world that you want to invest in and know that your investment is making an impact in some way. Um, I think the second part for me, which I'm now learning is establishing um, self care and sort of maintaining um, capacity and expectations. I think I've always been driven by my ambition coming from where I came from and, and wanting to do something to feel like I'm contributing something good to the world. But in building that uh, sort of personality trait and, and the work that I was doing, 
I just left behind like any sense of taking care of self. And part of that is like rules that I established for myself as a child, which is like how a lot of people are affected psychologically as adults, right? Like what happened to you in your childhood and and how you had to like set boundaries for yourself affects affects you now, right? Um, so I've been dealing with that because um, I have just been like, even since like really even when the pandemic started, I feel like I was working even more than before because I was so like taken aback by how much this was affecting like every member in every corner of the community. So I think it's just so important now um, to establish, you know, especially establishing boundaries. I think the other part of community work and community organizing work is like, the the line between work and personal is very blurred (laughs) and um you know in my in the last five years or really like I've been living in this neighborhood like eight years but like in the last five years of working in community development organizing in the neighborhood like I've had people knock on my front door when they're in distress or I've had like just these things come up that are really tragic or or challenging to see because I know these people personally um, so maintaining that sense of, of self-care and even drawing those boundaries, like when you need to kind of take a step back, I think is really important because community organizers like get burned out really easily because there it's so much about being with people and taking the time to know them and understand them. Um, you can build social capacity over time, but it's like, it comes at a cost too, depending on, on how you're treating yourself. So yeah, I think those are the the two biggest points for me about that. Well, I just want to say, I mean, you know, theater can be an extremely competitive environment, <laughs> but at the same time, I I don't know that I've ever created the kinds of bonds outside of that environment as I did within it. And so, you know, for you to take this as a tool to create those bonds and facilitate creating those bonds, you know, among community members is really powerful. So I just want to thank you for, for sharing your journey with us. Yeah. I always say that like, you can, if, if you can do theater, then you can like do anything in life, right? Cause you learn like working with all people, working with all personalities, like mm-hmm. making stuff up as you go, setting deadlines, right? Like all of these things, public speaking, um, collaboration, all of that stuff is like so important in any, any aspect of life. So I wouldn't have been able to do what I did in community development without those skills. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate having you on. Yeah, thank you. That was wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Nuj, and my co-host this week was Casey. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio in Cleveland, Ohio. The series is supported by Mark Lewine and the John Gray Panther Program. If you like our show and want to know more, more check our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you want to support the podcast, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, and swag, featuring designs by Donuts and Coffee, head over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about race and democracy.